everybody. Welcome to the outpost. Thanks for enduring the, uh, the weather. I think, I don't know why this semester, but it seems like every Wednesday, every Wednesday this semester, it feels like that's when it wants to snow and wants to get cold. So you guys are the, you guys are the hardy crowd. You know, the, this is the hardy crew. It's like, you can't stop you. You're going to be here, you know, come sleet, snow, whatever. But here we are. Yeah, here you guys are. And so we are, we are continuing our series on Daniel. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 6 tonight. And we're going to have a great time. We're looking at this man, this young man originally when we, when we were talking, Daniel, who at, it really in his life was, was in a culture that really celebrated his faith, really like supported his faith, encouraged his faith. Like even though Israel had by and large begun to, to turn from God in a corporate sense, starting to allow other things of the world into it, that there's still was every holiday for Israel was a holiday of how God had done something in their history. Like every, every weekly rhythm included the Sabbath and this sense of, of remembering and realigning their lives to the Lord, right? There is this understanding of who God is in Daniel's life. And then as a young man, he suddenly has his entire country devastated, destroyed, and he's exiled into this place, Babylon, and, and suddenly finds himself no longer in a place that is encouraging, supporting. In fact, the opposite. In fact, it's pressuring him to move on, to move past his faith, to move past that thing. It's antiquated. It's outdated, Daniel. Right? Like, it, it literally, if you remember from that first week we were talking, the fact that, that Babylon conquered Jerusalem was to the ancient mind the fact that their gods were greater than Yahweh. So they're like, we've moved past Yahweh. We've moved past this idea of the Jewish God. We've moved past this. You need to let this go and move on and embrace our way of thinking, our worldview, our perceptions of reality and move into your destiny with us. You know, it's a lot like our world sometimes. Sometimes the world does that. Right? And some of you maybe grew up in an environment where you were kind of in that you know, environment where it was encouraged and supported. And some of you guys are just in here like, hey, I've, I've never had that. I don't even know what that is. You, know, you kind of like, like you know, some of the people in Daniel's stories that are like trying to figure out who Yahweh is through the people who were following him. But wherever you're at, our world generally has moved past. It's, it's considered a post-Christian culture right now. It's moved past this place of saying this is acceptable, embracing, or encouraging of, of following after Jesus, following after Yahweh. But it says instead we need to move past this. We need to pressure, push you out of that old way, that old morality, that antiquated way of thinking into our destiny past this religious stuff. And so often there is kind of this social pressure, even though there isn't always overt laws against that, certainly not in our country, gratefully, but there is this social pressure. And Daniel is kind of in that place. This is how he is too. And yet, in the story that we're going to read tonight, he is no longer this young man who's kind of full of zeal and passion and young and, you know, vibrantly like, yo, I'm just going to stand up against the man and whatever happens. But now he's this old man. And yet we're going to find he's still faithful. He's still consistently following after his God. And what does that look like to live out a faith that day in, day out, year in, year out, consistently over the decades would see his faith thrive and survive in the midst of a culture that was oppressive at times or at least antagonistic at other times towards his faith. So Daniel chapter 6. Starting in verse 1, we're going to jump right in. It says, It pleased Darius, that's the king, to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. So actually, Nebuchadnezzar has passed away. Uh, Babylon has been conquered. There's a whole new government. The, the Persians are ruling. The Medes are ruling. Um, there's a whole, you know, Daniel has actually gone through, we think, three or four different rulers at this point, and yet he's still here. He's still this person of influence and authority and power. It's amazing how this, this man is, is a person of influence despite some of the things that were not popular to the world around him in his life. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. 
Now, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. You know, that's an amazing, you know, testimony. Like, how, how would you want your life to be accounted in, at the end of your life? How would you want people to see you? Would you want them to say, like, man, you so distinguished yourself that, that even, you know, after generations and decades, people are like, you are, you are the best at what you do, right? You're the best at this, and there's, and there's nothing in you that's false. Verse 4, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel. They're ticked. There's a power play. They want the power that Daniel has in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor diligent. Negligent, sorry. Finally, he was, he was diligent. He was. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Right, again, not only is Daniel like a man of power, of influence, not only is he considered the best at what he does, but he also is so incorruptible, unable to be you know, manipulated or dissuaded from doing what is right, that they come to this realization, the only way we're going to get Daniel out of office is if we actually twist things and actually use his faith against him, right? If, if only our faith would be so profound in our lives that people would say that's the only way that we could even think about trying to find faults in our lives, in our faith, in our, faith, in our following after Yahweh. So verse 6 says, So these administrators and satraps went to a group, as a group, to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty, issue the decree and put it into writing so that it cannot be uh, altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Be careful of your pride. It is your great downfall. And they have this interesting rule uh, with the Persians and the Medes. They actually, it's, it seems as if it's kind of an attempt to, to create a scenario or a governmental system where the, the king can't really be manipulated uh, in the case-by-case -case situations of the day. Like if there's a law, it's, the king is actually subject to the law, which kind of was, was advanced for its time. But these guys are going to try to use that and twist it uh, towards their own ends. Um, so King Darius put the decree in writing. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. All right, so what's, what's fascinating is you, there's this kind of this concept that sometimes we'll talk about is like there's, this, there's a difference between uh, sins of omission and sins of commission. And sins of commission are things like we know we're not supposed to do it. We, you know, we know like, hey, I'm not supposed to cheat on that test. I know I'm not supposed to look at porn. I know I'm not supposed to like get wasted this weekend, right? There's things that I know that I'm not supposed to do. Those ones, in some ways, uh, even in the temptation of our world, sometimes those are almost the easier things at times. Like, okay, this black and white, we know, okay, that's, that's you know, not glorifying to God, not living in my, you know, humanity as God desired and designed it. And yet, there's other things, these sins of omission that sometimes really creep in, and they can be our downfall. Because it's not something I've done, it's just something that, I don't know, they're not really interested in my faith. I want to just kind of keep that private, personal. That's, you know, nobody's, nobody's thing but mine, right? Like, well, I don't have to, like, why do I need to pray for that person? Or like, why do I even need to pray? I mean, like, you know, I'm busy. I got, you know, things going on, right? It's these, it's these things in our life that, that keep us from doing what we know we should do to draw closer to God in our life. And, and here's Daniel. There is nothing in the law uh, that says that he needs to like pray towards Jerusalem 
or that he has to pray three times a day. There's, there's some things in the, in the law and the prophets in the Old Testament that kind of hint at the idea of, of some of these things. But, but there's nothing about, there's no law about this. You know, it'd be so easy for Daniel to just be like, you know what? I'll just pray privately for 30 days. It's 30 days. No big deal, right? Like, I don't have to pray to my, in my window where everybody can see, right? Like, I just, I'll just do it in my prayer closet, right? It's spiritual, right? But Daniel refuses. The funny thing about Daniel is he refuses to either separate himself from the culture around him. He refuses to, like, okay, we're going to just kind of go over here and do our own thing, and you know, we'll have our own little holy huddle, and we'll have our own little you know, thing that we're safe and we're secure and we're kind of isolated from the rest of society. But he also doesn't align his life to the culture around him, right? Like he doesn't separate and he doesn't align. He's like, I am not going to change my life because of the culture around me. I'm not going to alter my faith for the sake of the culture around me and its desires. And so here's Daniel. He's not even, there's no law that he even has to do these, but he refuses to change his convictions for the sake of, of the world around him, right? People oftentimes, like, you know, they'll read these things in, in, our, in our world so often. They're like, hey, I just, you know, we don't want to be legalistic, right? You know, it's true. That is very true. You know how far we are from legalism? The only thing we're legalistic about is not being legalistic, which typically means, you know what it means? Is we have no discipline, we have no spiritual discipline in our life. Daniel has spiritual discipline. He prays three times a day. He's like, I don't care what you do to me. I am not going to stop doing things that are going to draw me closer to my God. And I will not alter that in my life, no matter what the cost or the consequences. All right, keep going. Verse 11, then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or the decree you put into writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. It's really interesting. The king is not angry with Daniel. He's angry with himself. It's really interesting here. Daniel's had an impact on this guy's life, and he's doing everything he can to save him. He realizes his folly. Then the men went to a group, as a group, to King Darius and said to him, Remember, hey, your majesty, we got you. According to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. You got to throw him into the lion's den. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. It's amazing that even this king recognizes Daniel serves Yahweh continually. Not when it's convenient, not when it's you know, helpful or helpful to him, but continually the king recognizes this consistency in his faith and in his life. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. What's interesting is, though, the king actually seems to have had a sense of hope. He was, he was despairing. He was, he was fearful for Daniel. But there does seem to be a sense of hope. Like he, there's, he says, may your God save you. And it's amazing what happens when there's no other option. That's when God likes to show up. When we've exhausted every other option. Right? And sometimes it's our own folly. It's our own things that we've screwed up. But you know what? Lord can use that. Don't think, oh, I screwed it up. God can't do anything about that. No, he's, he's going to use King Darius's screw-up to bring glory to himself. Right? He can use yours too. There's redemption in our lives. But, but he has this hope. He has this hope that maybe God could do something. Maybe this God of Daniel could do something. And, you know, I remember Dick Foth. He's a pastor as well as other things uh, connected sort of to, to Chi Alpha. We, we, are, we love calling him friend. But he, he makes this comment. He says, you'll probably be the only Bible most people ever read. 
And so the question is, does your faith, does your life proclaim the gospel? Does it proclaim the hope of your faith? Does it proclaim the consistency of your devotion? Does it proclaim your obedience and, and devotion to your God? If you are the only Bible most people will ever read, do they read the gospel in your life? And here's the Darius, and he has this sense of like, maybe God could do something. I don't know what else there is. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Question mark? Question mark? Maybe? Anybody there? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty." Now this is, this is, Daniel is actually, uh, there's, it's very specific what he's kind of doing here. The language in ancient times sometimes is called the innocence by ordeal concept. It was this idea that if, if you put someone in a life and death situation and they survived, or not even a life and death, like a death and death, right? Like there's, there's no way out, right? Like throw them in a the lion's den. There's, there's no out. If they survived against all odds, it was, it was, uh, affirming that the gods saw them as innocent or forgave them or saw them as, as forgiven. And so the king would have been washed clean of any responsibility to, to execute Daniel. He was, he was innocent at that point because the gods you know, had, had dec decreed Daniel innocent in their sight. And so Daniel is kind of you know, doing this to the king, saying, hey, king, this is your out. This is, this is how we can get past this. I have been supernaturally saved by, by my God. Um, the king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Now, this is a very just barbaric society. We recognize that. But, but one of the things to keep in mind with this is this does highlight, like, it wasn't like the, you know, sometimes people a little more ignorant to the situation are like, well, the lions were just, you know, they weren't hungry for the night. It's like, no. As soon as these people were thrown in, they were instantly devoured. Like, this was a supernatural act. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth. See, the Persians and the Medes had the largest kingdom ever known in the world at that point. And here, because of Daniel, the world is going to hear the proclamation of the greatness of Yahweh. I issued a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Minor point, but it's actually, that's probably the same person. It's probably actually uh, just two titles of the king there. All right, so if you ask most people that say they're following after God, what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? One of the things that most people will say is that I should be a person of prayer. That would be a high on the list of like things that should be in your life if you're gonna be a follower of God. If you ask them then why you should be a person of prayer, most people even though it's kind of a universal answer that I should pray, it's also universally confusing why I should pray. So you say, what should you do? I should pray. Why? I have no idea. Which is generally why prayer is something that gets lost in the mix of all the other needs and desires and pressures of life because I don't even know why I'm supposed to pray. I just know that I'm supposed to, I think. True, and we'll get to that. So the, the question, though, is for Daniel, he sees prayer as this deeply profound idea. In fact, it's so profound that he is not willing 
to, to walk away from it no matter what the cost, even though we typically are willing to walk away from it for any cost. You know, if it costs us anything, we will give up prayer. Daniel, he'll give up his life. He'll give up everything else except for prayer. And so why is it for him so profound and such a big deal that to pray is central to his life? Now, prayer obviously has a lot of attributes to it and a lot of things that are in, included here. And I can't do a, a good, jo- uh, good job doing all of, of what prayer is, even if I understood it all. But there are a few things that I do want to highlight tonight as we talk through, like why is prayer a big deal and why is it important for us? And why does it seem to Daniel to be worth his life and worth, and maybe the, in, the hint of why in his life he had this consistency of faith and devotion to Yahweh throughout it. So first off, one, I just want to say, how does prayer change me? Then two, we're going to talk about how does prayer change the world around me? And then three, how does prayer connect me to my God? How does prayer change me? How does prayer change the world around me? And third, how does prayer connect me to my God? Okay, a lot here. I'm going to just kind of fly through this for our time tonight. But in prayer, I align my attention to God. Daniel starts here in his prayer by praying to Jerusalem, which is really interesting. Uh, again, there's nothing in, you know, the Levitical law or otherwise that would say that they needed to do that. It was just this idea that Daniel is putting his attention on something that is helping him align his life to the Lord. That when he was praying to Jerusalem, it was as if he was saying, God, I know that you promised us that we would return to that someday. I know that you have a plan. I trust your plan. Even though I am alone in a foreign country, in a culture totally alien to myself and to my way of thinking, my worship to you, even though all of those things, I know that you have a plan. Even though I don't see it, I see the future and I'm praying into that. And we need to have that same sense of, of purpose in our prayer that we, that in our prayers, we're praying into something greater than ourselves. Right? Daniel is praying into something greater than himself. He knows he probably actually will never experience going back to Jerusalem again. His life is here and now, but he's not praying about himself or for himself. He's praying for the future of his people and the future of the kingdom of God in the world. He has this hope, something greater than himself. And so in prayer, we learn to align our will, our heart, our desires to the Lord. It changes our desires to become more like the Lord's. It's in prayer that we begin to align our lives to the will and the heart and the desires of God in a world where we're so used to being told that it's okay and it's acceptable and it's encouraged to align your desires to your will, to your, your heart, to your life. Richard Foster says, to pray is to change. Richard Foster, Celebration of Discipline, great Christian classic, says, prayer is the central avenue God uses to transform us. If we are unwilling to change, we will abandon prayer as a noticeable characteristic of our lives. In prayer, real prayer, we begin to think God's thoughts after him, to desire the things he desires, to love the things that he loves, to will the things he wills. See, Daniel didn't pray because he was a person of conviction. He was a person of conviction because he prayed. It was that lifestyle of constantly putting himself in that place of putting the major things in his mind that were major to God, to aligning his focus, his attention, his heart, his will, to the will of God. And when he began to pray into that, it was him who was being transformed. It was his life. And it's no wonder that when the moment came and the other moments in his life that came that were temptations to maybe just compromise this one time, of course not. Why? Because his life was constantly aligning. I'm not living for the power that I have. I'm not living for the money or the wealth or the prestige that I have. I'm living for God and his kingdom. And he was so aligned to that will that, of course, in this moment, I'm not going to change. Why would I? That's not who I am. But the more we fall away from that consistent and continuous discipline of praying into the kingdom of God, praying into the heart of God, praying our will into God's will for the world, the more we begin to learn either that we're following further from that 
identity in ourselves or closer to the alignment of our life to the Lord's as well. And those decisions and those choices become easier or harder depending on how we treat that. Prayer is a sacrifice of our time, energy, and attention from personal concerns or the things in this world that we turn to for satisfaction in order to focus instead on God's concerns and to find our satisfaction instead in him. All right. Now, second thing. Uh, second thing, this is going to be the most interesting to some people, and some people will probably have questions, and I don't have time to really do a lot here. So if you have questions, I'm happy to talk more. But Daniel goes up there, and he immediately prays, and I guarantee you he was praying, God, help me. <laughs> I need some help. I'm kind of in a tough spot. And God intervenes by sending an angel. There's other times, we're going to get to them in the weeks to come. This is actually the last story before we shift. There's a shift in Daniel here after chapter 6 where it starts to go into the prophetic. And it's far more about the prophecies and the works of, of what God reveals to Daniel. But multiple times throughout those times, Daniel's just kind of confused. He's like, what is going on? There's like, you know monsters coming out of the ground and there's these kings and these things and I don't know what is happening and and so he would pray say God I need help here I don't understand what's going on and multiple times in the chapters that will come an angel will show up and say hey God God sent me to you um uh, in fact, one time, you know, we'll talk about spiritual warfare one week, which will be fun for people. But like, what is spiritual warfare and what does that look like? But, but this angel will basically say, hey, I was trying to get to you. There were some things that were happening. I couldn't get to you as quickly as I wanted to. But, but you know, here I am. Uh, because you are loved by God, basically, because you have this relationship with God, you prayed and, and I, I was sent. Right? So here's the idea. Whenever Daniel prayed, things happened. Things changed in his world as a result of his prayer. Now, to understand this a little bit better, just a flyby of this idea, we got to go to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, this poem here in Genesis says in verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. All right, so we know this story probably. You probably know something of it if you've never even read Genesis. But, but God creates man and woman and he puts them in this garden. Now this garden is this representation literally physical, biological representation of God's dominion, his rulership, his beauty, his order, his creation in the world. And Adam and Eve are put into this garden and told, actually, to advance it, to take this cell, to take this place and advance it into the, the, into the environment past the garden to take the garden and grow it and advance it to the ends of the earth, to expand its biosphere past this little cell into the rest of the known creation. But God gives them an out. He says, this is what I want for you, but you have to choose. So I'm going to give you, you know, this tree and there's going to be this fruit. And if you want out, uh, you can take it. This is going to be your representation of, of that choice. Right, I, I have a cousin who's a Navy SEAL, and when he was going through training, they had a bell, and if he wanted out at any point, he just had to go ring the bell, and that was the signal, like, okay, I'm serious. I'm not just musing about this. I'm not just questioning this. I'm not wrestling with what I should do. This is my choice, right? And so that was kind of Adam and Eve's bell, if you will. It's like, hey, we're out, and they, and they rung it. And so what happens is they go into the world, but they go without the garden, they go into the world, but they cease to have the garden with them. They cease to have this place where God's dominion, his rulership, his beauty and order and design and creation is expressed in their life and through their life and what they do. And so the rest of the story of really the Bible is God trying to bring us back to that garden, back to that place where there's this partnership and this camaraderie and communion with one another. But in all of this, through all of this, uh, we see this story progress. Of course, we get to Jesus 
And he begins to say some really interesting things. He says this in Matthew 6, 9. This, then, is how you should pray. The disciples never ask Jesus anything in the, in the Gospels. In fact, it's a, really, it's a shame, really. They have the Son of God in front of them, and they never ask him anything. Right? He asks them all kinds of stuff. Right? And, and some of you guys need to learn this lesson, too. It's like, have you ever asked your leader anything? Have you ever asked your small group leader a good question? Have you ever, you know, you ever ask, like, you know, your, your cohort leader or just even your professor, maybe, you know, do you ask good questions? The best form of communication that many college students need to learn is the communication of asking questions, right? And, and the disciples don't know this yet, they have, but they ask this one time. One time they ask Jesus a question. They say, how do we pray? It's not even really a question. It's kind of a statement. Teach us to pray. And she's like, okay. And so he answers them. And he says this. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Literally, what Jesus is getting at is this idea that when we pray, that there is something that actually happens. That actually God's will is not happening in the world. That's like a premise to this statement. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth because your will is not happening and your kingdom is not here. The garden is not advanced. We separated ourselves from it. We left it behind. But if we pray, we can ask God, hey, can we do this? Can we come back to the garden? Can we enter this place where your kingdom is again expressed and experienced in our world? But it's coming through prayer. Why? Because we have dominion. So God said, hey, you go out into the world, but guess what? The world is, is yours. I gave it to you. The problem is, is you took me out of it, so now you have the world without me. But if we pray, there is something that happens in the world, that suddenly God is invited back into that place, and his rulership is again able to express itself through us and in our lives. And if we pray, something happens. If we don't pray, something doesn't happen. Right. He would later say this in the, in the same book, just a couple of chapters later. He'd say, pray to the God of the harvest, because the harvest is plentiful, but pray that he would send laborers. Why? Because if you pray, something could happen in the world that wouldn't happen if you didn't. That in prayer, we actually are learning to exercise what God designed us for in the garden, to be this place where heaven and earth could come together, where God's rulership in our authority would merge together, and there was this partnership. And if that's like, okay, strange to you, like, yeah, we could talk about that, but that's why we talk, you know, I had, I had a friend I was just talking with, and he was, he was telling me just the other week, he was, uh, he's the director in North Dakota, and he was talking about, uh, he was teaching at this, at this conference, kind of this, uh, like men's advance kind of thing, but it was last semester, uh, women's retreat, you know, but he was, he was doing it with his wife. They were doing this, just this like fall salts conference last semester in Oklahoma. And there was these Chi Alpha staff that had been trying to have a baby. Uh, they'd had six miscarriages, but, but there was a medical issue. And I forget, I don't know if Chad remembers, but there was something specific. It was a specific medical thing that was why they were having such a hard time. And, and his wife, um, Brad's wife really felt like the Lord said, hey, just go pray for her, for the, for the woman, for the wife. And so she went up there. And, and this isn't every time. In fact, if you talk about healing or things like that, not every time do you like sense like anything profound. But she was like, something was happening. She was like, it was like electric. She's like, I could tell the moment I laid my hands on her, the Lord was doing something. And he just, she just prayed for this woman. Well, immediately after the conference, they got pregnant. And everything is going great. But not only that, actually in the medical tests, that medical issue that the woman had was gone. It was no longer, they couldn't find it in her body. So they're like, there's no reason to think, you know, right, yeah, it's cool, yeah, that's cool. You give God a hand, yeah, 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 that's cool. It's like, do I interrupt him by clapping? I don't know. What's the protocol here? Um, yeah, you can do that. But, but it was this thing, like God healed her, right? Heaven came to earth. God's will came into the situation and something transformed and transitioned in the world because of it. And we could talk about like how those, you know, how those things work and, and why 
know, it works in this context and not that. There's all kinds of things about spiritual warfare and all these ideas we can talk about. The point here that I'm simply saying is that we need to learn how to pray. And Daniel was a man who knew how to live his life following God, serving God, and in that there was this, this ability for heaven and earth to come together. When Daniel prayed, things happened. And it's such a powerful thing. St. Augustine even said, without God, man cannot, and without man, God will not. In prayer, things change. All right, third thing, in prayer, I grow in abiding with God. How prayer deepens my relationship with God. Three times a day, Daniel prays. Three times. It's not a law, but it was a habit. It was a discipline of his life. He was aligning his life, but there was this sense of continuous abiding with the Lord, that he was constantly trying to commune with the Lord. John 15, Jesus would say, I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. Right, And so the idea of this vine and the branches is this idea of this, you know, the vine has to continue to abide in the, in the branch. Right? It's this continuous, consistent thing. It, it doesn't change, it just remains. And Jesus would say it this way. He would say, love God by loving God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Now, how do we love God? How do we abide with our mind? Well, you know, Daniel here is constantly trying to get back to that. Doesn't mean that he can do that all day, every day. You know, he's doing, you know, he's doing administration work and, and everybody's like super impressed with him all the time. So he's working hard, right? And it doesn't mean like you can do calculus and like think about God's, you know, in the same, you know, John 3.16. I'm thinking about that while I'm trying to do my like, you know, accounting homework. Like it doesn't work that way. We get that, right? But what he is saying is that there is this sense of abiding in his, in his mind, He's constantly going back to that place. And that thing changes your, your heart, right? Sometimes we would think of that maybe almost as like emotions, like how I think about the world and how, you know, how quick I am to forgive and give grace to that person who's you know, frustrating because you know, we have this group assignment. It means a group, people, right? Show up, right? Like, you know, am I gracious to them? <laughs> Some of you are like, I, I am that person. Oh, God, forgive me, right? So... Right, but am I gracious? Do I have love in my heart for the people around me? Do I feel, right, because my mind leads to this place of abiding in my, in my heart and my, my strength or my actions, you know, stepping out and in, in serving people and learning to love people and fight for people. Like, as I learn to abide with God, I learn to be able to sacrifice and serve God more easily. But there's also this place of spirit that in my spirit that I was... In Genesis, God breathed something, and that was more than just a concept of oxygen and nitrogen and all kinds of stuff that kind of go on, but it was this idea that something deeper, that there is something in us that Jesus says, hey, remain in me like I remain in you. Now, how many of you guys know, in fact, later he says, he basically connects that to the Holy Spirit later in that chapter. How many of you guys realize that, like, I don't want God just to show up once in a while. <laughs> like, I need him to be with me continuously. And in fact, Jesus says, that's how you're supposed to do that. How? Because there is this place where we learn to abide in our spirit that there's, transcends how our mind thinks and our hearts feel and our strength acts. But there is this place of communion with God. Andrew Murray in With Christ in the School of Prayer, great book. This is one of the first ODGs I ever read. But he, he says this, what our prayer accomplishes depends upon what we are and what our life is. Living in the name of Christ is the secret of praying in the name of Christ. Living in the Spirit fits us for praying in the Spirit. Abiding in Christ gives us the right and power to ask what we will. The extent of the abiding is the exact measure of the power in prayer. The Spirit who dwells within us prays, not always in words and thoughts, but in breathing that is deeper than utterance. As much as there is the Holy Spirit in us, there is real prayer. And he's basically seeing, here's what Andrew Murray is saying. He's just saying like, hey, like there is, we have the Holy Spirit. We can draw close to God. That We don't have just this belief in God. We're invited into this relationship with God. And when we learn to draw closer to him, our will changes, our alignment focuses. And when we begin to pray in his name, it's because our lives have become his 
will. And when our will becomes his will, we can pray anything and it'll be done. But too often we pray without the conviction of his heart in our lives. And Andrew's saying, hey, it's through drawing close to the Holy Spirit that we draw close to the will of God and through the will of God, the abiding presence of God's power able to flow through us in and through our lives. Daniel can risk it all and endure anything because he is a man who knows how to abide with his God. All right, so common attributes of prayer. We're going to close this thing up here. Common attributes of prayer. One, gratitude. Right, gratitude. Do I pray? And this, you know, there's all kinds of lists, and there's better lists probably than this. I'm just giving you some real basic concepts just to work from. Right, but these are common attributes in our prayer life. Do we pray in gratitude? That's a great way to align our hearts and our minds to God. God, I am thankful. Not just, I mean, if some of us prayed the way that like, or talked to other people the way that we pray to God, I, I would be like, go bother somebody else. I don't want to hear about all of your problems all the time. Like, I want to hang out with you. I want to have fun with you. You know, maybe say thanks once in a while, right? Like, do we have gratitude towards God? Do we wait on God? Do we listen? Do we stop? Do we let him speak? It's too often we are the ones who talk all the time. Offering. Do we say, God, here's what I've done. Here's my life. I think an active aspect of learning how to abide with God is learning to give God everything that we have. So every paycheck I've got, so I say, God, I give it to you. I'm not saying, I'm not, there's no kind of like manipulation, like, hey, you need to like make sure, you know, give to missions, give us stuff, yeah, all that. Yeah, do that, of course. But I'm just saying like the stuff that you own, you need to let go of possession of. So the moment you have a relationship, God, I give you this relationship. Every time you get a check, God, I give you this check. Every time I get a grade, God, I surrender my academics to you, right? Everything needs to be continuously surrendering to the Lord of our lives. All right, wonder, so often we lose our first love because we've lost the ability to wonder. Are we in awe of our God? Are we grateful in the sense of saying, God, not only praise, thank you for what you did, but wonder at who he is. And then lastly, intercession. And that's a little bit of what we talked about. When we pray, God is able to move in the world as a result. So worship team, you come, come back up. And I think, I think the thing that I just want to remind us here tonight is simply this, that, that if we are going to live our faith well, and not just well for a week, you know, a weekend, some of you guys got back from men's events, some of you go into women's retreat, right? Not, not just, yeah, come on. Not just live your faith well for a weekend or a week or, you know, a semester or for Chi Alpha college career, you know, what? If you're going to live your faith well decade in, decade out, life day in, day out, then you need to learn how to be a person of prayer. And to remember that it's in that place of aligning and abiding and recognizing that through it we can see the world impacted through our life, that we find this deeper sense of purpose and meaning and value in our faith. And in prayer, ceases to be this thing that we add on if we have time but it becomes the center of what our time revolves around. That's a conviction for me too. I'm not like, okay, you know, I get busy. I've got kids at home. We've got all of you guys. Like we, I get it. I understand. And yet there is this deeper place of saying, God, <laughs> if I can't be with you, what's the point? If I can't find my satisfaction in you, then why am I even trying to strive to advance your garden into this world? If I can't even find the joy of being in the garden, why am I trying to grow the garden? But if I learn to abide in that garden, how much more am I going to have the motivation and the conviction to grow it in my life and the lives of the people around me? So we're just going to spend just a minute. I just honestly, I'm just going to leave you guys to pray. Like, hey, let's talk about prayer. Great, let's just pray, right? That's gonna be our response, just pray. You pray where you're at. You can come to the front. You can go off to the side, don't care. Just for a few minutes. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, so don't waste your time being like, okay, just, like, should I pray, should I not? Maybe I'll, Instagram, you know. Like, just, just for a few minutes. But I want you to just say this, like, hey, maybe for some of us, like, we just need to align our life. That first thing we talked about. 
Is my life aligned to the Lord? Maybe for some of you, it's never been aligned. And you need to give, surrender your life to the Lord. It was a great night. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to somebody who brought you. They'd love to walk with you in that. Some of us, yeah, it was aligned, but it's further and further without prayer, without attention to the Lord. We just find ourselves further and further from that alignment with our God. And more and more, it becomes harder and harder to really make choices that are also in line with that attention and that focus. So let's just spend a few minutes and let's just say, God, I align my life. And whether you're saying like, I'm doing it great, then guess what? Every day we say, we still say that every day. God, I align my life to you. I surrender my things to you. I give you my life. And where we learn, where the Holy Spirit begins to say, hey, you're not, you're not aligned there. We say, all right, God, with open hands, we say, all right, God, lead me in your power to step into that once again. So let's take a few minutes and I'll pray and we'll do one more song here tonight. Lord, we thank you for the fact that you chose to abide with us. And Jesus, you did that physically with your incarnation. You did that emotionally with your devotion and your openness to drawing close to us. You did that mentally, but just in the way that you made yourself known to us, making us aware of you and spiritually, Lord. Drawing, drawing the Holy Spirit into our lives, God. Ultimately, through the cross, you brought all of yourself to us so that we could bring all of ourselves to you. God, we thank you for the way that you have aligned your life. You aligned your life to us so that we could learn to align ours to you. God, help us Lord, to live like Daniel, people of conviction and character, marked by a life of power through prayer. We give you the glory for it, God. As we go into worship here, feel free to keep praying, or you can stand with us and sing. But let your minds be filled with the wonder of a God who has aligned his life to you so that you can align yours to him. So let's do that and worship here tonight. I'm reminded in that song um, of the angels in the vision where it, they cry out, holy, holy, holy. And it's, it's actually kind of a, a literary device in the Bible when they didn't have exclamation points or emojis or, you know, things. When, when something was significant, the writer would just repeat. Um, there's only one time in the Bible that it repeats three times. And it's when the angels in the presence of God are proclaiming the essence of who he is. And they say, holy, holy, holy. Just remember that as, as you draw close to God, that you are drawing close to a holy God. He is more than able would say that the very spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you. That is the power of our God. And your needs and your struggles and the questions that you have, he is he's there. And he's with you. And the situations that you're facing are not insurmountable to him. He doesn't promise to always take away the struggle in our lives any more than he promised Daniel to have an easy life, but he did promise that he would be there and that he would make his name great in the world. It's actually an interesting thing. Daniel would always turn his eyes to Jerusalem at the end. It makes this comment about the king and his titles. We actually see at the end of Second Chronicles, which would have been the end of Daniel's Bible up until that point, this decree and it actually looks like it's the very same king that Daniel was serving at that moment from the title that the king's given at the end. That very same king would issue a decree that, that Israel would be remade into a nation again. See, Daniel 
prayed into a future that he didn't believe he would ever see, and yet it was his prayers that would usher in that very hope that he was looking for. It was through that story that when the king sent out to all the nations, he also proclaimed that Jerusalem be rebuilt, and the temple be rebuilt, and that the future of Israel be restored again. We serve a great God, and he's going to be with us in the storms, and he can use the storms in our lives to transform our situations. And whatever you're facing tonight, just know that, that he is with you, and that he is more than able to meet you where you're at and in your place of need. I was, uh, last thing, we're going to close here, but that, uh, that book, With Christ in the School of Prayer, we're going to have a bunch of them next week, next couple of weeks, as we kind of come out of retreats uh, for the spring. Uh, we're going to have them cheap, five or six bucks. You can get them in the back over the next couple of weeks. But in two weeks, we're going to try to encourage, just as a group, we just want to actually kind of go through that book. And we're going to go off into spring break in a couple of weeks, and we're going to have uh, a week we're going to focus on prayer and fasting at the end. But that book is, uh, Andrew Murray's really good. He's, he's really easy to read, but it's, it's profound what he says. And and it's, there's 31 chapters. They're real short, each one of them. And we're just going to encourage anybody that wants to join us, but we're going to just, like every day, kind of go through that book. You know, on top of reading through Scripture and in your prayer life, but just recognizing we need to be a community of prayer. And, and just be fun to kind of do that together as a group and be, keep our minds focused and our attention on God. How do you want to grow our prayer life and, and do something, have a little discipline in our own lives to read through somebody who had an incredible prayer life and let him spur us on in our own, in our lives. And so if you'd like to do that with us, uh, we'll be doing that here in a couple of weeks, but we'll have those books out over the next couple of weeks. I encourage you guys to do that with us in your Devo life and just having some daily time to put our minds on why prayer matters and then spend time in prayer in response to that. So just look forward to that. But girls, have a great time at women's retreats. Remember, have a great time. We love you. We didn't get kicked out of the YMCA, so miracles do exist. Um, but, but have a great time. Remember to sign up tonight if you're coming and everybody will see you here next week same time same place have a great night